Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to SCOTUScast. I'm your host, Justin Drawer, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. We're here today to discuss Glacier Northwest Incorporated, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, which was argued before the court on January 10th. It's my honor to introduce our guest today, Alex McDonald, a former labor lawyer at Littler Mendelssohn and the director of the Future of Work and Labor Law Project at Instacart. And with that introduction out of the way, I'll hand things over to Alex. I do want to just say very quickly off the top, thank you to the Federalist Society for putting this on. It's incredible how much educational and professional material the society puts out, free for its members, for the public. I consider it a true public service, and I'm honored to be able to do uh, my little part in making it happen. Um, so uh, that's going to be all the um, patting on the back I do today, because we are here to talk about a case, um, Glacier Northwest. And it, the argument has turned out to be a little more complicated than I think a lot of us were expecting. Some of the issues that came to the fore were not the ones that many of us expected the court to focus on. Um, so what I want to do at the very beginning, um, because there's a lot of misconceptions about this case floating out there. So let's just kind of start about what this case is not about. Um, if you had been reading just what you'd read in the general um, media about this case, you could have been led to believe that it was about strike rights, um, that somehow this case represented a threat to the basic right under federal law under the National Labor Relations Act for a worker to withhold his or her labor um, collectively as part of a, a, a protected concerted activity. Um, that's not what this case is about. Um, in fact, it's more, it's about a narrow issue, a few narrow issues actually under federal preemption doctrine under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, now, before, before people start logging out of Zoom, um, I want to just stop you. Um, preemption is actually really important. It's still quite interesting. It's just not this uh, direct full-on assault on strike rights that you may heard of have heard about um, uh, in the media. So just so we all are on the same page and we're working off the same sheet of music, just take a step back, talk a little bit about preemption. What were the issues the court was considering today? Um, the court was actually considering one, one type of preemption of which there are several flavors under the NLRA. Um, there's something called Section 301 preemption um, that has to deal with federal labor contracts and who gets to interpret them. Um, there's uh, another type of preemption called machinist preemption, which is where um, Congress meant to leave a particular activity unregulated and the state tries to regulate it and you know, the court has said that that's improper. Um, we're actually talking about a different type and this type is called Garmin preemption and that comes from the name of a uh, case from the 1950s. Um, that case involved picketing on an employer's property. Um, there was a dispute about whether the picketing was protected by the NLRA. Uh, the question sort of turned on the union's motivation, whether it was prohibited under certain sections of Section 8 or whether it was uh, protected under those same sections. Um, the court ultimately 
reasoned that when Congress passed the NLRA, what it was trying to do was create a uniform national scheme of labor law. Um, and it meant to give primary authority for developing that labor law and administering it to a centralized agency, which is the National Labor Relations Board. Um, and so that that scheme would stay uniform and coherent, the court announced this fairly broad um, preemptive standard for conduct that is, and this is the, the key word, arguably, that is arguably protected that are arguably prohibited under the statute. If conduct is arguably protected or arguably prohibited, then state courts are preempted um, or prevented from regulating that same conduct under state law. And that, that, that is true whether the state has passed some specific scheme on its own to try to you know, uh, manage labor law, or it's regulating the conduct under a more general statute, such as state tort law, um, which is what's at issue here today, or was at issue here this morning. Um, so that, that, as broad as that is, there's a couple caveats we have to offer before we, we launch into arguments. Um, garment preemption is not absolute, um, as you might expect. Um, it's been around for now 70 or nearly 70 years, um, and courts have developed, and even Garmin itself announced that there would be certain exceptions to it. There are two main exceptions, um, and I guess a third that's not really an exception, and we'll just walk through those quickly because only one of them is really important here. Um, one is if the, the, the conduct at issue is tangential to the, 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 the federal scheme, then courts will not um, uh, preempt states from regulating it. So it's just like, yes, this is protected, but it's really beside the point. It's not going to interfere with our um, uh, uh, administration. Then that's that's going to fall within an exception. Another exception, and this is the one that's that's actually being litigated and important here, is when the conduct in question is um, uh, close to local feelings and interests, uh, so close, in fact, that it would be irrational to think uh, that Congress intended to prevent states from regulating it. And this that bucket sounds very imprecise, but really what it's been used to do is allow states to prosecute, or not pro well, prosecute, yes, in some cases, but allow suits to go forward under state law dealing with improper conduct that happens to occur during a, um, a, a, a labor dispute. For example, if I punch somebody, um, that person can still sue me even if I punched them while I was on a picket line, right? Just because there was a labor dispute going on doesn't mean the state is entirely ousted from regulating things that it's traditionally regulated, such as um, violence. Or in this case, um, the question was property damage. Um, the third one, and I'll, I'll just cover this very quickly. The third one that I mentioned a few minutes ago um, about you know not really being an exception. If the conduct is in fact clearly not covered by the NLRA, then none of this matters, right? If if something is clearly unprotected, it is outside the scope of the NLRA, then we don't even need to get into government preemption. States can regulate that. Um, so that's that's another uh, another potential. There was something that was lurking in the background. In this case didn't really play in the oral arguments. It was in the briefs. So let's talk very quickly about how this case got to the Supreme Court. What actually happened here? So that's preemption doctrine. What what is this case actually about? Um, it came out of a, a sort of a surprise strike. 
Um, the company in question is a ready mix concrete company, and I am not a ready mix concrete expert, but I'm about to tell you I am learning secondhand uh, along with all of you. Um, ready mix concrete, as I understand it now, as it's been described in the in the record and as it was described in the briefs, um, is a is a substance that dries and hardens very quickly. Um, it has to be continuously mixed and it has to be poured on the same day. Uh, and for that reason, the company maintains these special or has these special trucks that have spinning drums that keep the concrete wet while it is being transported and ready to be poured at whatever site it's being poured. Um, in August 2017, this is when the, the strike occurred, um, the company's contract had a collective bargaining agreement with a Teamsters local um, expired. And a few days after expiration, the union called a strike. As the strike was called very early in the morning at 7 a.m. It's described rather colorfully. Apparently, one of the union representatives came out and made a thrashing uh, motion with his hand, uh, or a slashing motion with his hand, rather, and um, uh, called the strike, and the workers all walked off the job. Um, at this point, because the work actually starts at around 2 a.m., um, there were a bunch of workers already out at various stages within the delivery process, and at least 16 of these workers, as it's been alleged in the complaint, had full loads um, and were in various stages of delivery. And they all turned around, took their trucks back to the lot and parked them. They did not dump them. They did not wash them out. Um, they did not deliver the concrete. They just drove them back to the, the company. And at least nine of those folks didn't even tell the company that they were doing that or had a full load. They just parked them. Um, as a result, again, uh, this is what all, everything I'm telling you is coming from the complaint. That's important for a reason I'll get to in a second. Um, according to the company, it had no workers spare on hand. It couldn't deliver the concrete. And so what it ultimately had to do was dump the concrete in special depots and the concrete was ruined and it lost, um, it lost the value of that concrete. None of the trucks, uh, incidentally, were, were damaged, but the concrete, of course, was lost. Um, in reaction to this, uh, the company did two things. One, it disciplined the workers who were involved, the 16 who returned with their full loads. Um, it ultimately rescinded some of the disciplinary letters for those folks who had given them notice, but it left them in place for those nine who had not given them any notice on the ground that they had intentionally tried to uh, damage the property. And it also sued the union. Um, it filed a lawsuit in state court, um, filed a complaint, said that the union had timed the strike uh, to deliberately destroy its property. It, it compared the, the conduct to vandalism, right? The union had not just gone out on strike, but had deliberately decided to time the strike at this exact moment to maximize the risk and the damage to the company's property. Um, the state, the union, in response, said, uh, you know, uh, invoke Garmin said that this, because the strike itself was arguably protected by the NLRA, the claim was preempted. And at the same time, it filed a charge with the National Labor Relations Board. Well, I shouldn't say at the same time. A few weeks later, it filed a charge with the National Labor Relations Board saying that what the company had done when it had issued these uh, disciplinary letters was that it had discriminated against the, the workers for engaging in protected activity. Um, the state Supreme Court uh, agreed with the company on the first First question. It said that ordinary property destruction claims, like the one the company filed in this case, um, did not qualify for any uh, exemption under Garmin. And 
and uh, because this strike had occurred um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a labor dispute, it was arguably protected. Um, it then pointed the proceedings at the NLRB um, the, uh, involving the, the charge to say, well, this should be uh, addressed by the NLRB in the first place. Um, and you have no exception. The, the, the conduct is covered. Um, we're going to dismiss your complaint, even though what you've alleged is a deliberate destruction of property. Um, okay, so that's how. Then, then obviously the the uh, the employer filed a petition, and the court accepted it. Um, one other thing before we jump into the argument today, and this is actually it ended up being more important than um, some of the reporting and even my own preview that I wrote for this um, uh, thought was going to be important. So, lurking in the background of all of this is there's a separate but distinct doctrine called primary jurisdiction, and that document or doctrine says that before um, uh, courts get to weigh in on whether conduct is covered by the NLRA um, for the purposes of deciding whether it's arguably protected, um, the board uh, gets the first crack at that. Um, and the reason goes back to what we said earlier about Congress trying to create a uniform labor regime. It wanted the board to police that regime in the first place. So the union argues that the state court got it right on that question because the state court pointed to the fact that the board was considering charges uh, when it was when that case was going up and that the board was going to have a chance to weigh in on whether this conduct was covered. Um, and so it dismissed the, the complaint saying, nope, you know, primary jurisdiction, this is a question for the board. Um, all, all we can do is say that the, that the board is looking at this and so we're not going to peek behind the curtain. Um, no reason for courts to get involved yet. Um, they can, uh, the board can work it out. Off the top, I will say that all of this fighting about um, whether the conduct was arguably protected or whether it fell into that, that Garmin exception for the local feeling, um, there seemed to be remarkable unanimity among the justices um, on that question. And I say that because most of the questioning during the company's arguments, they had Noel Francisco arguing for me, did a very good job. Um, and when uh, the Biden administration uh, took its turn, the court gave the administration half an hour to argue its perspective on this case. Most of the discussion was not about these, these exceptions or whether the, the, the conduct alleged fell within the exception. Most of it was about this primary jurisdiction question. Um, but when you got to the union's argument at the end, uh, even while well, I'll describe them as the liberal judges, I'm not sure that that, or justices, I'm not sure that that's the... Um, uh, PC way to do it, but Justices Kagan and Sotomayor and even Jackson um, all seemed skeptical of this idea that uh, the union, that, that as alleged in the complaint, the union's conduct was arguably protected. And the reason for that, I mean, look, so this case was dismissed on a motion to dismiss. The state court should have um, accepted all the facts as alleged as true, as I just described them to you. And as alleged, what the union did in this case was deliberately act to destroy the company's property. Um, that may not be what happened, and the union vociferously has resisted that characterization of it. Um, they resisted it in their their uh, at every stage in the Washington state courts. They resisted it at the Supreme Court today. They resisted it in their um, opposition to cert in this case. Their position is that look um, under board existing board law. 
Um, the only obligation employees who are going out on strike in a situation like this have is to take reasonable, quote unquote, reasonable precautions to protect the company's property. And in this case, the drivers did that. They left the trucks running. Um, they, they brought them back to the company. They let the company know it was coming. So there's a factual dispute here. Um, but what Justice Jackson was honing in on, and Justice Sotomayor seemed interested in this point as well, was, well, that may be the case. Um, and it may be that once we get into discovery and we litigate this and we dig into the facts, we learn that no, I mean, the, the, there was no deliberate destruction here. The workers did every reasonable thing to make sure the concrete wasn't lost. Um, they had no obligation to deliver the concrete. They were engaged in a protected strike, but they, they did do what they needed to do to make sure that the concrete um, wasn't unnecessarily destroyed, or at least that the trucks weren't unnecessarily destroyed. And what they did was reasonable, um, even if that's true. Um, you had to, at this stage in the litigation, accept those allegations and let the claim proceed because otherwise what you're saying is even if I come into court and I allege, I don't know, um, the example Justice Jackson gave was, well, you can't burn down the factory on your way out. Right. Everyone agrees you can't burn down the factory. Even the union's attorney said, no, no, you can't burn down the factory. Um, it, it, but if I come in and allege that, and then the union comes back and says, well, actually, I didn't burn the factory. I um, uh, accidentally dropped my cigarette on the way out, um, and I otherwise took reasonable precautions, and the, 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 the case gets kicked. That's just not how civil procedure works. I didn't think it was the point they were making. So there doesn't actually seem to be, bottom line, any disagreement at the Supreme Court that deliberate, intentional destruction of property um, falls within this garment exception, that states would be allowed to process claims for deliberate destruction of property, even when they had occurred during an otherwise protected strike. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm getting to the end uh, kind of quickly here, um, uh, or at least the bottom line on that point. Um, but what I will say is that I would be very surprised if the court came out and said anything else. Um, I would expect that to be, if not unanimous, then at least um, a substantial majority of the court would be willing to say, um, no, the Washington Supreme Court got it wrong here. Um, what was alleged was non-protected activity, and they shouldn't have dismissed the, the, the complaint on, on that basis. And in fact, that's the position the government is taking. The Biden administration is arguing that uh, the court should reverse the Washington Supreme Court and hold that this con the conduct, as alleged, was not protected. Now, now we get to the actual disagreement in the case, which is about the primary jurisdiction question, which is about what happens next, right? So let's say that the court kicks this back to the Washington courts and says, no, you you inappropriately dismissed this, the complaint on its face, alleged unprotected conduct. Now what happens? Um, the Biden administration thinks that under the doctrine of primary jurisdiction, what should happen is the courts should stay their own proceedings. Um, they know that charges have been filed with the National Labor Relations Board, and they know that the general counsel at the National Labor Relations Board has accepted those charges and decided to file a complaint. And that means that the board will ultimately get a crack at deciding whether this conduct was protected or not. And given that posture, their argument is that the courts have no choice but to um, uh, the, the phrase that was being uh, uh, thrown around was a, a hiatus of jurisdiction, 
right? <laughs> Which uh, that concept was a little more controversial uh, among the justices. You got some skeptical questions on that point from uh, from Justice Thomas. Uh, he he was sort of focused on this idea, like um, how does preemption doctrine normally work? Right. Okay. Um, would we normally say that a federal agency has "quote unquote" primary jurisdiction, and that state courts can be ousted of their own jurisdiction? Um, I think "ousted" actually was uh, Noel Francisco's phrase, but they were getting at the same concept, which was: uh, Can we force state courts when they have already properly taken jurisdiction over a uh, pending? claim which alleges uh, unprotected conduct and we force them to stay their hand while uh, the case proceeds. Um, he, he seemed extremely skeptical of that. And so, frankly, did Justice Gorsuch. Um, Justice Gorsuch asked this, these questions a little more pointedly. He was asking, you know, can you give me an example anywhere else where we would apply preemption doctrine in the same way? Um, and the best the best that uh, the government could do was um, pointing to the uh, uh, Interstate Commerce Commission uh, and that there was a primary jurisdiction uh, uh, doctrine under the Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC, which I, I think uh, most people who will be on a call like this now has been defunct for decades. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, there's some suggestion there from Justice Gorsuch that Garmin is an outlier. And he, he honed in on that at one point and asked, um, Noel Francisco, uh, well, do you still think that Garmin is wrong? Um, are you still asking us to re-examine that? And, um, you know, the company, Noel Francisco, he sort of, you know, he didn't take the bait there. He, he pulled up short. He said, look, I think you can decide this case without actually re-examining Garmin. Um, he didn't press that point. But I will tell you, in their briefs, the company was uh, uh, much more aggressive on that point. It suggests that Garmin went further than any preemption case uh, 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 in federal jurisprudence, um, that it's inappropriate, particularly because um, the NLRA itself says nothing about preemption. This is all sort of a judicially created doctrine that has developed over the years um, based on inferences about congressional intent and how we think labor law ought to be run and what, what makes the most sense as far as a centralizing authority in a central agency, um, all of which may or may not hang together logically, but it's not based on text, right, which is um, sort of at odds with the way this modern Supreme Court approaches these questions. Uh, so there's at least a couple of justices who are interested in re-examining the whole thing. Um, but on the other side, um, Justices Jackson and Kagan and Sotomayor, and to some extent the chief, um, were asking questions that suggested they do think that the board ought to be the one to examine this question in the first instance, um, that the board ought to have first crack, uh, consider whether the conduct is protected. And if the board decides it's not, obviously the case would be allowed to proceed. And even if the board decides that it was, there would be a path for the company to challenge that conclusion through the normal appeals process under the NLRB. Um, and that was very interesting because neither Alito nor Kavanaugh asked a single question during oral argument today. So it's hard. I mean, it's, you don't know where they are um, on this. Uh, you, and the, the, the court doesn't project video, so you couldn't you know, read their faces or anything. Um, Alito was probably the most surprising because, look, if you read 
anything about Justice Alito's jurisprudence, and then you um, he listened to some of the uh, characterizations of him, and uh, I would say maybe caricatures of him. Um, he's he's portrayed often. Uh, in in reporting on the court as an anti-union justice. Um, and that mostly comes from a few decisions he wrote in the context of agency fees um, as they relate to public employees. He was the author of um, Janus, which was the famous case that said uh, from two, 2018 that said, uh, you know, um, uh, agency fees are unconstitutional in the public sector. He also uh, authored uh, decisions like Knox, which was sort of a precursor to Janus. He's long been a, a critic of those particular fees. So he's he's not known as somebody who has warm and fuzzy feelings for unions, but he didn't. I, I think that sort of approach, expecting him to just um, reflexively side with the company because this is a labor law case, is a little reductive, right? I mean, the issues here are entirely different than the issues in something like Janus or in something like Knox or in something like, um, uh, for another example, Cedar Point is a case that gets thrown into the mix here when we talk in the reporting that talks about this case. All of those cases are just, you know, in, entirely orthogonal to the very recondite issues we're talking about in this case under federal preemption doctrine. I'll just say what I think is likely to happen here. Um, I don't want to uh, duck the issue. Um, I'm probably going to prove wildly wrong. Um, but I, I said earlier that I think the court will say that the Washington Supreme Court misconstrued the, the jurisprudence around this Garmin exception. I don't think there's any or much daylight among the justices about whether alleged intentional destruction of an employer's property is protected under the NLRA. Um, the, the, the way this, so I, I just want to make sure I'm giving um, fair shake to both sides here. The way the union has framed this case is, look, it's un, it's also uh, un, um, uh, undisputed that workers have the right to strike and that they often strike with the intention of causing economic distress to the company. And that means there will be incidental uh, damage to, quote unquote, property. And that happens all the time. Like, what if the employer makes cheeses, right? Um, by striking, we may uh, inevitably cause the company to lose some property because no one will be there to process the cheese or whatnot. Um, and that will be true of any company that has perishable products. That's that's essentially their line. Like you can't you can't just say property destruction is unprotected because that would undermine the right to strike. Um, but the, the justices seem to be looking at it a different way. There's incidental destruction, which is destruction that just happens because I'm not on the job, right? That's going to happen. I didn't mean for that to happen. I didn't time it to maximize the damage. All I did was I walked off the job. I exercise my right to strike and the employer inevitably lost money. Um, that's different from alleging that I went out and I burned down the factory, uh, to use Justice Jackson's example again. Um, and I think there's unanimity on the court that that kind of allegation and conduct is not protected. Um, it's a little less clear what the court is going to do with the primary jurisdiction um, uh, question. One thing that was suggested today at oral argument was that the court not even say what should happen when the case gets uh, remanded, that it just say, look, the Washington Supreme Court should not have dismissed this at the procedural posture uh, where it was sitting. Um, they should have accepted the allegations on face value. And now we're remanding to the court for further proceedings to decide what it's going to do, whether it's going to go on a jurisdictional hiatus or whether it's actually going to proceed with the claim. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUSCast. 
SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot org slash multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production.